Again, good morning and welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Well, last Sunday, Zach preached from Genesis chapters 24 through 26, looking at several of the most pivotal events in the life of Isaac, the promised child of Abraham and Sarah. But to be honest, even after his miraculous birth, Isaac appears to be more of a transitional player in God's big plan. He's not really the center of attention in most of his stories. And it seems as though the biggest thing that Isaac has going for him is who his parents are. So by the time we get to our passage today, Isaac's story may seem a bit boring. But no matter how boring his story might be, the one thing that you can't take away from Isaac is his identity. He is the son who will carry God's promise forward after Abraham dies. And that's pretty important. But as we pick up today, we read a story that is anything but boring. We'll mainly focus on Isaac's son, Jacob, even though their lives have some significant overlap. But compared to the passages that we read last week, what we read today is far from transitional. It's far from uneventful. In fact, Genesis 27 through 36 reads more like an ancient soap opera a reality TV show of biblical proportions. There's drama, betrayal, revenge, deception, surprise, and conflict. And at moments, the story sounds so over the top that it can't possibly be real. The characters and situations seem so ridiculous that it must be fake. And if you've watched any soap operas or reality TV shows lately you're probably thinking that you can't really learn anything of value from a story like this. Stories like these may make you laugh here and there. They'll occasionally make you cringe. But they're really only good for one thing, and that's entertainment. So overdramatic and sensationalized stories like these can't really teach us anything significant or meaningful about ourselves, about God, or about his plan to rescue and redeem sinners, right? Well, wrong. So open up to Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. Feel free to use the Bibles that we have here if you didn't bring one, and take one of those home if you don't have one of your own. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to sing these songs and read from your word and spend together, pray together, worship together, take communion together, give together. Uh, Father, all these things that we do on Sunday mornings that might seem routine, might seem ordinary, um, can easily be taken for granted. Father, all these things are great joys and great privileges. And Even if they seem ordinary, even if they seem routine, these are some of the biggest ways that you grow us and you shape us and you mature us. And so, Father, I pray that we wouldn't take them for granted. So, Father, I pray this morning that our worship would be honoring to you and encouraging and building up for us in all the ways that we need it to be. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for your word. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, to be totally honest, this sermon is the one that I've been dreading the most as we walk through the book of Genesis, mainly because there's a ton of material to read through, 
And some of these stories are just simply bizarre. Some of the stories seem pointless. However, as I studied and wrote and prayed and thought about the sermon this week, I found myself thinking that this sermon might actually be a lot more fun than I expected. So follow along as we get an overview of this incredible period of Jacob's life, hit briefly on some of the most significant events, and then try to discover some meaningful lessons together at the end. So again, our story begins in Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. We read there. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, a face only a mother could love. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. While Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So like Abraham and Sarah before them, Isaac and Rebekah have trouble bearing a child. And that, of course, is a major obstacle to the promise that God issued way back in Genesis 12, becoming a reality. Abraham's family can't become a great nation if they don't have descendants. So Isaac prays, and after 20 years of marriage, Rebekah finally conceives twins. But before the two boys are even born, we see a sibling rivalry develop. Rebekah says that she can feel the boys fighting even before they're born. So she asks God why this is happening, and God gives her that strange answer in verse 23. We read it again there. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. What exactly does that vague and slightly ominous prophecy mean? Well, only time will tell. But eventually the two boys are born, Esau first and Jacob second. And who came out first was a big deal in their day and age. Because Esau was born first Conventional practice indicated that he would receive two-thirds of the inheritance from Isaac, and Jacob would only receive one-third. So a lot of money is on the line. But even as they exit the womb, we see their rivalry progress. Jacob is holding Esau's heel, and his name means heel grabber, or even worse, one who cheats. And we'll see just how much of a heel Jacob really can be. And as they grow up, these two boys couldn't be more different. 
Esau is a man's man, while Jacob appears to be more of a mama's boy. To make things worse, Isaac and Rebekah pick favorites, which can only add fuel to the fire of Esau and Jacob's rivalry. But then we start to see things develop in verse 29. We read there, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. That word means red. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So the first time we truly meet these two boys, they've become adults. And the first impression that we get of these two men isn't exactly flattering for either one. Esau is a brute, and Jacob is a jerk. Jacob cruelly and selfishly refuses to share food with his exhausted brother unless Esau agrees to give him his portion of the inheritance. Esau rashly and foolishly takes the bait and agrees to Jacob's deal. The point is that neither child seems like an angel so far. But the truth is that chapter 27 is where the soap opera really kicks off. Chapter 27, starting in verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And Esau answered, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food, such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats, so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. So by now, Isaac is at least 100 years old. And as he lies on his deathbed, mostly blind, he makes plans to bless Esau, the older son. Again, that would be perfectly normal in their culture. But what about that strange prophecy we read in chapter 25? The older will serve the younger. God spoke that prophecy to Rebekah. So it's possible that Rebekah hid it from Isaac. Maybe Isaac never heard it. But if he did hear it, did Isaac forget the prophecy? Or is it possible that he's intentionally rejecting the prophecy because Esau is his favorite? Either way, Rebekah overhears Isaac's plan to bless Esau, 
and she immediately takes action. She formulates a plan to trick Isaac into blessing Jacob while Esau is out hunting. Rebekah and Jacob go to ridiculous lengths to make sure the plan will work. They disguise Jacob to make the old man think he's Esau. It's a classic case of the ends justifies the means. Rebekah firmly believes that God wants Jacob to come out on top. So if it takes a little bit of dishonesty and a dash of cunning to make it happen, then so be it. The ends justifies the means, right? And guess what? As crazy as it all sounds, the plan actually works. We see what Isaac says to Jacob, thinking he's speaking to Esau, in verse 27. See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, naturally, when Esau returns from the hunt, he and Isaac realize what's happened, and they're confused and angry. The passage says that Isaac trembles with anger. But according to Isaac, what's done is done. He only has one blessing, and he can't take it back. It's been given to Jacob. So we see what Isaac says to Esau in verse 39. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. These two brothers will eventually meet again. But in verse 41, Esau vowed to kill the man who has now wronged him twice. So needless to say, this family can be described as dysfunctional. None of these people is particularly likable. There's Isaac, the old, weak, blind, gullible, favorites-playing father. There's Rebecca, the vindictive, deceptive, favorites-playing mother. There's Esau, the thick-headed, impatient, short-sighted brute. And there's Jacob the lying, conniving, heel-grabbing swindler. So far, this story could match up with any episode of Days of Our Lives or The Young and the Restless. All this talk of stolen inheritances and revenge and vows. But believe it or not, the drama of Jacob's life is far from over. As we move forward, Jacob flees to his uncle Laban's house, the brother of Rebekah, his mom. And in spite of Jacob's questionable deeds, God affirms him as the next patriarch, the one who will carry God's promise forward from Abraham. You can read about that in chapter 28, the famous dream known as Jacob's Ladder. However, that doesn't mean that life will now be smooth sailing for Jacob, because he's about to get a taste of his own medicine. When Jacob arrives at Laban's house, he meets Laban's young and attractive daughter, Rachel. Jacob wishes to marry her, rather than Laban's older and slightly less attractive daughter, Leah. So Jacob and Laban come to an agreement. 
Jacob will work for seven years to marry Rachel. But then the morning after the wedding, Jacob realizes that Laban tricked him into marrying Leah. In the words of theologians Three Dog Night, it's just an old-fashioned love song coming down in three-part harmony. But the point is, for the first time, Jacob, the trickster, has learned what it feels like to be tricked. Now, long-term, eventually, Jacob will get the best of Laban. He'll work for another seven years to marry Rachel, become quite wealthy through some smooth, slick dealings of his own, and eventually his family will leave Laban behind. Jacob's family also expands with numerous children. As if the drama of this story couldn't get any more absurd, Leah and Rachel, both married to Jacob, sisters, get into a competition of sorts to see who can give Jacob the most descendants, who can make Jacob love them more. It's a classic case of baby wars. So Leah gets a head start, giving birth to four boys. Rachel had trouble getting pregnant, so her servant Bilhah steps in and gives birth to two more boys. That's six. Leah strikes back by giving Jacob another pair of boys by her servant Zilpah. That's eight boys. But then Leah has two more boys and one girl of her own. So we have ten boys and one girl. And eventually, Rachel will have one more boy much later in the story, but she will die as she gives birth to that child. So these 11 sons would grow up to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph would count as two, which we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead. But as you can read on your own in Genesis chapter 34, arguably the biggest victim of this family's dysfunction turns out to be the only daughter, Dinah. But recapping where we are so far, we have a trickster father-in-law pulling a fast one on his trickster son-in-law, a man sleeping with a woman he thinks is his wife, only to find out it's actually her sister, and two women competing to see who can have the most babies. Not even the trashiest reality TV show could top this. I think somewhere in Canaan, the ancient versions of Jerry Springer and Maury Povich are racing to see who can get Jacob's family to come on their show first. But maybe, just maybe, Jacob's life will settle down now. He's the chosen servant of God. He's got a good inheritance in store. Two wives, a bunch of descendants, and his old conflicts with Laban are now a thing of the past. But there's still one dark cloud hanging over Jacob's future. There's still one person with an axe to grind lurking behind the scenes. And that person, of course, is Esau. If you jump forward to Genesis chapter 32, Jacob returns home with all of his family, and he knows he's going to run into Esau at some point, and so he sends messengers ahead of him to try and get a feel for what Esau is thinking. We read in Genesis 32, verse 6, The messengers return to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. So how do you think Esau will respond when he meets Jacob, the man who wronged him out of so much? 
Again, last time we heard from Esau, he had vowed to kill Jacob. And according to Jacob's servants, Esau has done pretty well for himself and now has a small army by his side. It's safe to say that none of that bodes very well for Jacob's future. And perhaps for the first time in his life, Jacob finds himself in a predicament that he can't wriggle his way out of. The trickster has run out of tricks. And as a result, we see a side of Jacob that we really haven't seen in these chapters so far. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 9, Jacob prays. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love, and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan River, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So when Jacob has finally run out of options, when he has no more cards up his sleeve, he prays. He asks God for help. He reminds God of the promises that he's been given. And he simply hopes that God will come through. But then in what has already been a strange story, something even stranger happens. That's in chapter 32, verse 22. The same night Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children— Remember, one of the children hasn't been born yet, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then the man said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But the man said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. So as Jacob makes preparations and strategizes to save the rest of his family from the inevitable carnage that is about to come at the hand of Esau, he encounters a random man in the wilderness. They start to fight. It seems like at this point in Jacob's life, that's the only thing he's good at. But as the night passes, it becomes clear that this is no ordinary man. This is a messenger from God. That line where the man says to Jacob, why is it that you ask my name? It almost seems like the man is saying, 
What do you mean you don't know my name? You know who I am. You've been wrestling with me your whole life. Now, Jacob put up a good fight, but he ends up permanently wounded with an injured hip. And as the angel prepares to leave, Jacob demands a blessing. But instead, he gets a new name, Israel. So Jacob emerges from the brawl, humbled and crippled, but also, in a very real sense, new. He might not be the quickly, overnight, transformed man that we sometimes wish he would be, but something has definitely changed. The name Israel means God fights. But thankfully, Esau won't be in the mood to fight. The next day, those two brothers will reconcile, and the story will move forward. But from now on, Jacob will limp. It's a crazy story when you really think about it. If this was a soap opera or reality TV show, you probably would have stopped watching by now because it was so far-fetched. And if you had kept watching, it wouldn't have been to learn anything. You would have just kept watching for the thrill of seeing a good old-fashioned train wreck. And after a crazy story like this, you can't be blamed for asking. What can we possibly learn about ourselves and about God and about his plan to rescue and redeem sinners. Well, a couple of reflections. Number one, there are no human heroes in this story. In the book of Genesis, people like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Esau, will occasionally display some virtue, will occasionally do some things that are admirable, And all of them are used by God in mighty ways. That's undeniable. However, each of them is far from perfect. It's not difficult to point out sins and flaws that make each of them insufficient role models. These are not the kinds of people that you'd want to imitate or the kinds of people you'd have babysit your kids. The fact that God uses messed up people like these doesn't give us license to pursue sin ourselves. It doesn't give us license to excuse the sins of others. But it does remind us that God can work through even the most unlikely people and even the most unlikely events. But again, truthfully, the only hero in the story is God himself. He's the one working through these bumbling, stumbling sinners, these wild situations, to accomplish his plan of salvation. And maybe that's the reason that God would use messed up people like these and messed up situations like these in his plan to remind us of who the real hero is, to remind us of who deserves the glory and who we really ought to be worshiping. Not Jacob, not Esau, not Isaac or Rebekah, not Abraham or Sarah, but the God who called them and the God who used them. But then even with that in mind, you can't help but wonder sometimes, after reading a story like this especially, why in the world does God do things the way he does? Well, the Apostle Paul attempts to tackle that question in Romans chapter 9, one of the most hotly debated chapters in the entire Bible. Paul wonders out loud why some people will be saved and some won't. He wonders why so many of his fellow Israelites have rejected the Messiah that God sent to save them, and why so many Gentiles will believe in him 
and follow him. Paul wonders why God chooses to use some people and rejects other people. Paul wonders why God hardens the hearts of some people and softens the hearts of others. In other words, Paul is simply asking, why does God do things the way he does? And as he wrestles with these questions, what story comes to Paul's mind? Well, the story of Jacob and Esau, when God chose the younger brother over the older brother, before they were even born. And ultimately, Paul rebukes those people who would question God's plan for salvation and would question those who doubt the methods that he uses to accomplish it. He compares questioning God's wisdom and questioning God's work to a hunk of clay criticizing a potter who molds it. And he says very clearly, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's a question that we should reflect on regularly. Who are we, O men and women, to answer back to God? And while our lives may not be as wild as the story that we've read today, I do think it's comforting to know that God can take sinful people and topsy-turvy events and use them for our good and his glory. So the next time that you do find yourself caught in the midst of chaos and drama and dysfunction that seems fit only for a soap opera or reality TV show, keep in mind that God is still good, that God is still holy, that God is still powerful, and God is still sovereign. And even in those moments of chaos, when it might be hard to see, even through the most absurd circumstances, and even the most absurd people, God can still work, and God can still accomplish his plan. And then, of course, don't forget, it's not just in the Old Testament that God used some pretty messed up people and pretty messed up situations to save us. In the New Testament, he uses people like Herod and Pilate and even Judas along the way. God's perfect son, Jesus Christ the Messiah, submitted himself to the judgment of corrupt religious and political authorities, died a brutal criminal's death on a cross, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and will one day return in power and glory. That's what we as Christians believe. But it's a story so far-fetched and so absurd that it could have never been made up. The story that we believe about our salvation Not even the most over-the-top soap opera would feature a storyline as ridiculous as what we believe. And it's all so that dysfunctional and unlikable sinners, people like Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Esau, Laban and Leah and Rachel and you and me, all through the cross might be saved. All so that we might get a blessing that, quite frankly, we don't deserve. Also that we can get an eternal inheritance that we have no business calling our own. Also that we can get new names as sons and daughters of God. And it's all by his grace, all by his kindness, and all by his mercy, so clearly expressed through that crazy, ridiculous story that we believe about the cross. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Passages like these are a mixture of funny and entertaining and confusing and strange and hard to wrap our minds around. And yet, Father, that is also our story. You look at our lives, and our lives can often be funny and confusing and strange and hard to really understand. And yet, through stories like these in your word, and even in the midst of our stories, you are working to save sinners like us. You are working to redeem and rescue sinners like us. And Father, thank you that You've accomplished that, most of all, through the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. That, that crazy story that seems so far-fetched and so ridiculous to so many people in our world. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians, so many people look at the cross and they think it's folly. They think it's utterly insane that we would believe that a crucified Messiah could give us eternal life. And yet that's exactly what we believe. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are and for what you do. Thank you for sending your son to that cross, an extension of this story begun so long ago through people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Thank you that we are the beneficiaries of that promise, that we get blessings, we get inheritances that we don't deserve. We get rewards that we would not be remotely entitled to based on our own efforts, or based on our own goodness. Again, it is all of your mercy, all of your grace, all of your kindness. So, Father, as we prepare to go out into our everyday lives, whether they be very normal or very chaotic and dysfunctional, I pray that we would be encouraged by the fact that you can work through it all. The crazy situations, the crazy people, sometimes when those people are us, Thank you that you can work through that in spite of us. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen.